The following program is being brought to you on the Green Talk Network. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit thegreentalknetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Welcome. Today's episode is the history of whaling in America and a bit about the whale watching industry as well. My guest is Eric J. Dolan, author of Leviathan. Uh, hello, Eric. Hi, Rob. How you doing? Great. Good. Where are you calling us from? I'm calling you from my home in uh, Marblehead, Massachusetts, not too far from the ocean and perhaps some whales way off in the distance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is that time of year, I guess. Yeah. Um, I'm calling you from uh, the uh, from Boston, where I am meeting with the Stellwagen Bank National Marine Sanctuary Advisory Council. So I'm a member of this advisory council, and we get together four times a year and help to better manage and get the word out, publicity, and get people to visit a Stellwagen Bank. Yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful area. I've been out there a couple times on whale watches, and uh, a great natural and national resource and national treasure. It's going to be 20 years old next year, 2012, so they're thinking of trying to think of some celebratory things. And... It really came to people's attention because that's where the whales uh, like to feed. That Stellwagen Bank is a um, it's like the threshold between the Gulf of Maine and Mass Bay, where you have this shallower water, this bank, Stellwagen Bank, uh, between uh, stretching between Gloucester and Provincetown. Mm-hmm. And years ago, uh, actually about 1976. A bunch of science supervisor, public edu- educators, uh, convinced Al Avalar to take his uh, fishing boat. He takes people hook and line fishing out of Provincetown mm-hmm. to set out to sea in the middle of April, and they saw more right whales than they could imagine, and probably have wow. ever seen since. Wow. And that was the first kind of whale watch. <laughs> and the, the next year, um, it started in earnest. And that that summer of '76. I happened to be um, at the helm of a 27-foot sailboat off the coast of Maine when everybody else was down below, and this I heard this this noise, and beside the ship was a stretch of back the size of the ship, you know, and I was <laughs> pointing at it and going, Ababi, Abu, and um, someone below thought I was having an epileptic attack because I was just pointing at this thing, you know, and then uh, this stretch of hide, and, and then the next thing, by the time someone got up, there was just that kind of slick spot on the water, you know, like, right. what are you talking about? And um, it, it turned out that it was probably a right whale because it had no dorsal fin or no kind of ridge bone showing on it. 
mm-hmm. and one had been sighted in that area. But the odd thing was that it only blew, you know, as far as I could tell, they can probably hide pretty well, was that one time next to the boat. Hmm. So I was really psyched up about to see a whale and went to Provincetown the following April after the science supervisors went out, and I was into science education at the time. Um, and uh, there was Stormy Mayo, who had just graduated from uh, Miami uh, Graduate School, having gotten a Ph.D. in uh, Portuguese Man Award jellyfish. Mm-hmm. And uh, we set out on Al Avalar's boat to, to look for whales and uh, found them um, on Stellwagen Bank uh, because of the uh, this, you know, bank of welling that causes the seawater to well up and come into the light. It's full of nutrients, and it, the algae eat it, and... Uh, the whales come in and eat the fish that eat the algae. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, no, uh, uh, have you been out with your two kids to see that? Yes, I've been out a couple times with my kids, a couple times on my own. And I, I have a, a story similar to yours. I'll tell it real quick. It was, uh, I think it was the first whale watch I ever went on. It was while I was in college at uh, Brown University, and I started this natural history club at school, which only lasted for the time that I was there. But it was a fun club while it lasted, and we set yeah. up, we rented a, an entire boat. We got 120 people, including my dad, who came up from New York uh, to go on this trip. And we weren't seeing many whales. Uh, we were seeing a lot of birds. And at one moment, there everybody was on one side of the ship looking off and listening to the naturalists talk about all the great birds that were in sight. And myself and uh, one other uh, person, a woman, were on the other side of the ship just sort of staring off into the distance. And all of a sudden I hear the woman who's about four or five feet away from me shriek. And she starts pointing. And I look down and what I remember seeing are two very large white objects coming rapidly towards the surface. And within a matter of seconds, perhaps split seconds, a humpback whale breached about 30 feet or so from the side of the ship, went way up above our heads, and (laughs) two white pectoral fins there were the white blobs that I had seen coming up through the the water. And then it uh, settled back down into the water with, with hardly a splash. It wasn't a big splash. And we immediately went over and told everybody on the other side about what had happened. And nobody believed us at first. And then when we finally convinced them that it had happened, they all got a little bit upset because they had missed this great event. But later on, the end of the whale-watching trip was fantastic because for some reason, a couple of humpbacks uh, came to the back of the ship. They had to turn off the motor. The, The whales came in close, and they sort of lounged around spouting. And people were literally covered in mist, in whale mist. Everybody's putting on their raincoats. And they stayed there for a couple of minutes and then slowly swam off. Wow. Yeah, that was the best trip that I've ever been on. <laughs> That's hard to beat. You really can't beat that. They get different dimensions, but uh, not every trip, as you know, they, they see breaching whales. And, right. And, uh, or yeah, they, whales they're, not, all, they're, not, they're not performance animals. They don't operate on cue. <laughs> so I, I had a chance uh, a few years ago to take uh, my, my boys out and uh, we were heading out, and uh, and as we as we cleared um, Provincetown area, there was a uh, uh, a gannet flying by, and so I pointed up and said, you know, there's a gannet, and it looks like a flying cross, you know, and um, and then on the radio, uh, the narrator on the loudspeaker came out and said, there's a gannet, it looks like a flying cross. <laughs> <laughs> 
and then a greater shearwater went by, and I go, look at the greater shearwater. They nest in Tristan de Cuna, and, and the speaker came out and said, look at the shearwater. They nest in Tristan de Cuna. <laughs> <laughs> it happened three times. And let me tell you, dads never look so good to their kids. That they have, you know, the right. voice of authority come out like that. Yeah. And the story is that that first trip out with um, Stormy Mayo and Al Avalar, you know, Stormy's up in the captain's pilot house with his, um, he had this, you know, canvas hat on with the black visor that goes halfway to Boston on it, on his head. And he's out there looking for whales up ahead. And I was down on the foredeck pointing out the birds on the way, you know. If I didn't see whales, I'd be happy seeing birds and stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, it drove him bonkers because he was waiting for someone to say, there she blows, you know, a spout. And said, I'm going, get it or something. <laughs> and so a couple years later, I was the first narrator for the New England Aquarium Whale Watches when we take this. 500-person Provincetown vessel out, you know, whale watching. And um, and apparently uh, Stormy and Al sent someone out on that cruise, and they recorded everything I said. And so they've been <laughs> saying my lines on the Dolphin Fleet boats for 20 years. <laughs> well, you live and, on. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, for the dad factor, it was totally cool to have your, you know, look cool to your kids like that. Yeah. Uh, and then... Uh, in the late in the mid '80s, I had an opportunity to uh, take a, a trip out of Gloucester to go. We we called it a sperm whale watch, and as you know, this from your your Leviathan book and, and before. Actually, I guess you know because you're a marine biologist that the the sperm whales uh, like the slope waters. They're not up on the continental shelf. They like the really deep waters. They like to dive deep, mm-hmm. and so when you when you go off the the slope of George's Banks. Uh, particularly the canyons, like Corsier Canyon, um, that's where you're going to find the whales. And sure enough, we got out there and, you know, June day and, uh, you know, 300 miles out, and there she blows, except she wasn't blowing, and it turned out to be a dead uh, sperm whale just ro- rollicking, just kind of lying in the water there. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we kind of circled around it, and I looked at the, I was up in the pilot house, and I looked back at the captain, and he was pulling on his wetsuit. And I said, what are you doing? <laughs> the captain uh, was from Gloucester, and he, in his spare time, he was a jeweler. And uh, he was saying, I'm going to jump in the water and cut off that jaw because those teeth are going to be great for, you know, scrimshaw work and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> he literally was putting on his wetsuit. It's like, uh, excuse me, but, um, you know, uh, Never mind that it's illegal, because these are Gloucester yeah. guys who don't like, you know, government regulating them anyways. Right. Uh, but, but... Uh, would have been interesting said, if he cut it off and how he would have gotten it onto the ship. But you're right, it was... It, it is illegal, and there have been some recent very high-profile cases of scrimshaw artists uh, engaging in trade in sperm whale teeth. And uh, I, I haven't followed the most recent stories, but I no. think a couple of the people participating either are going to jail or were in, indicted. And uh, it's pretty serious stuff uh, when the National Marine Fisheries Service makes a bust of uh, sperm whale teeth coming to the country illegally. You can have them if they're old, antique, or already uh, made into scrimshaw, but new, fresh sperm whale teeth is a whole different story, at least in the United States. Absolutely. So I convinced him that 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 whale was 
bloating up with decomposition, you wouldn't want to be the one to poke a hole in it. Oh, I wouldn't want to jump in the water. <laughs> and, and then uh, imagine the sharks will be coming real fast once you start that up and stuff. And right. That, that managed to discourage him from doing it. And we went on to see, um, I think, three or four um, sperm whales right in that vicinity and stuff. No, so great. the problem is, is that it's a much longer trip to get out to see sperm whales. Right. Uh, they do have, have watches of bottlenosed whales out of uh, Halifax, uh, Nova Scotia, because they have found a, uh, a feeding area for the bottlenose uh, whales, which is hmm. kind of unusual. Wow. But uh, we're really here to not talk about, well, whale watching is a new industry that's kind of replaced the, uh, the whaling industry that, that your book is about. So right. let's, let's talk about your book, um, Leviathan. Okay. Um, how did you come to, to write such a, such a book? Well, it was back in, uh, I think it was winter of 2003, and I just finished a book on the cleanup of Boston Harbor called Political Waters, and I needed a uh, new topic for my next book. I was I was working at the time for, I'd just kind of come up here, had left a job at the EPA, was working with the National Marine Fisheries Service, but writing is what I love to do, so I wanted to come up with another book topic, and living in Marblehead near the ocean, I, I fell back on my long uh, love of... Uh, the ocean. I, when I was a kid, I wanted to grow up to be Jacques Cousteau, and I decided that I have to write something that involves the ocean because there's just an inherent draw and a mystery surrounding it for me. So uh, one day I was sitting in my house, and we have a uh, it's a new box, but it looks like a very old antique box. Uh, it's uh, sort of looks fairly old, but uh, it's a shaker box, but it's painted with a whaling scene, actually a sperm whaling scene, and it shows a couple of ships uh, chasing and harpooning sperm whales, and uh, that got me interested. And if you want, I can read a little paragraph from the book that talks about that story. Please, that'd be great. This is Eric Dolan reading from Leviathan. Yes, this book was sparked by an image. A large oval box in my house is painted with a primitive, powerful whaling scene. The image shows a whale ship with its sails unfurled, three whale boats filled with men, and two whales that appear to be unnaturally buoyant, seemingly floating on top of the waves. Many times I gazed at that painting and wondered what it was like actually to go whaling. Having gone through the academic ritual of reading Moby Dick in school, I already knew about whaling, especially its golden age during the mid-1800s, but the painting continued to stir my curiosity, and soon I discovered that there were libraries devoted to whaling, providing almost unlimited material for historical narratives. This book, then, is my attempt to weave that material into a maritime tapestry that attempts to do justice to America's rich whaling heritage. And that's sort of, that was the genesis of the book. And, and I'd say one of the biggest uh, hurdles to overcome is dealing with the enormity of the, the literature. Here I was writing one book trying to capture almost 300 years of history, and there are literally thousands and thousands of great stories that could be included. Eric, Tell them all. we'll be right back after this break. Okay. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. All together. 
Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Find out which guests are being featured this week. Read our network press releases and read the blog posts from your favorite hosts. Go to iradioblog.com today. Powered by the Voice America Talk Radio Network. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're talking with Eric J. Dolan about his book, Leviathan, The History of Whaling in America. And Nathaniel Philbrick says it's the best history of American whaling in a generation. And Eric was telling us before the break how just there's so much information that has to be pulled together. There's so many different sources. And then there are also logbooks by all the whaling captains and so forth. And, and Eric, it's just phenomenal the way the book is so well organized. It's really, I, I, I invite everybody to, to, to get a copy of the book. And the neat thing is you can go to the table of contents and you don't have to read the chapters in order. You can, uh, because each one is a complete kind of vignette of different aspects of the history of the whale. So we're just going to talk about some of those vignettes on this show because there's just no way we can cover it all. Um, I was particularly, I found really fascinating the, um, the, the part early in the book you talk about America being a new world and being explored by Gosnell and, and Weymouth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, well, in the early 1600s, of course, there was this great desire on the part of many European nations, uh, foremost among them the English, to see what was happening over in the New World. They'd been fishing here for uh, well over 100 years, different different countries, and they'd started to get a sense of what was here, and they knew that it wasn't the pathway to the Orient, but maybe there was something to be had in this new land or new world of 
of America. And uh, Bartholomew Gosmold came over, and he was thinking about possibly setting up a uh, colony for the English. Uh, he landed on Cuttyhunk Island. He saw evidence of many great whales, uh, had a couple of problems with the Indians, went back to England. George Weymouth came and alighted up a little farther north in Maine, uh, heard stories about Indian whale hunts, and uh, he, he also didn't have much luck setting up a, a colony. But uh, these early voyages, as well as other exploits in the New World, including uh, the uh, settling of Jamestown down in Virginia, got uh, the Europeans quite interested in exploiting uh, the natural resources here, foremost among them whales, because they had had all these reports of whales from the fishermen, the Basques, and, and the English explorers that had come over. So in 1614, a couple of rich Englishmen backed uh, Captain John Smith, who had already been to America, down in Jamestown, to come to uh, New England to see if he could uh, make some money uh, hunting whales and also trading for furs and possibly even finding gold mines and silver mines. He didn't have any luck with gold and silver. He did trade for a few furs, but he had no luck with whales. And it's not 100% clear which whales he saw, but the evidence seems to point to uh, his men, who weren't particularly skilled at whaling, apparently. They, they seem to run across a lot of fin whales, which, as you know, are the greyhounds mm. of the sea and very difficult to harpoon, certainly for a ship of that era. So he didn't harpoon any whales, and uh, he eventually came back after mapping much of New England and calling the Boston area and Boston Harbor area paradise of all these parts. He went back to... England. But what I found fascinating is that in one of his later books, he talked about his original plan. And his plan had been if he had killed some whales, he was going to stay in America with 10 of his crewmen and establish a colony, basically a whale processing colony. And when I read that, I immediately thought how history can change by small, relatively small events. And just imagine if John Smith had killed some whales. Uh, the, we might not be talking about the pilgrims at all, and Plymouth Rock might just have remained a rock rather than a touchstone for the origins of uh, the American adventure. So I just thought that was a fascinating piece of, of history that shocked me when I read it. I knew nothing about that. I knew the broad outlines of John Smith's story, but nothing about uh, the role of uh, whaling and how our entire history might have changed had it not been for the failure of his men to harpoon a single whale. Yeah, and where do you think he would have set up that whale station? My guess is it would have been uh, someplace between Boston Harbor and southern Maine. He really liked the Boston Harbor area. Uh, he, when he was here, there were still many Indians. It was before the pestilence in the late 16-teens had wiped out huge swaths of the Indian population. But... He saw on the Boston Harbor Islands uh, evidence of many fields that were being cultivated, corn and, and the like, and he thought it was a beautiful area with the rivers coming into it. Uh, so maybe he would have established himself in Boston Harbor or perhaps a bit farther north, uh, or e even out uh, towards the tip of Cape Cod, perhaps. Not, not clear where he would have gone, but that he would have stayed, it seems pretty, pretty clear. Well, yeah, I'm sitting here, I'm overlooking the Charles River and the Salt and Pepper Shaker Bridge and stuff, and and Smith named the Charles River the Charles River. Right, yeah, he, he named a lot back. of the places in, in England for the the, uh, the young, the heir apparent. Uh, the, yeah. 
and and also the the current king he was trying to ingratiate himself uh with the rulers of the country that had sponsored his voyage and what better way to do that than to name a lot of the places in America after the rulers their relatives and other important spots in England yeah and then he went on to publish a description of New England yeah and eventually rue the day for publishing it when he worked for the pilgrims <laughs> yeah the pilgrims uh briefly considered hiring John Smith to guide them back to the New World, uh, but uh, they apparently didn't get along. They had a copy of his book, and they felt that was all they really needed because it had his map in it, and they turned to Miles Standish instead to be their sort of military uh, leader on the the uh, voyage over to America. Again, history might have changed had it been John Smith, uh, given his experience in Jamestown and his personality. Perhaps uh, we would have would have had a very different outcome when they got to America. Who knows? Yeah. More whaling by pilgrims, probably. <laughs> yeah. Well, when the pilgrims got here, they were immediately surrounded. The Mayflower was surrounded by uh, whales in off of uh, Provincetown. And when they finally settled in Plymouth, they had thought about making their fortune, or at least making money, uh, whaling, but they didn't really pursue it to any great degree in the early years. They were more involved in the fur trade at that time. Uh, but later on, whaling, of course, became a major industry in New England and one of the main financial supports of the colonies. Well, yeah, I was fascinated by your um, uh, talking about Boston Harbor uh, because we have this wonderful Boston Harbor Island National Park now, and um, people often don't think of some of the harbor islands are now under East Boston and uh, Logan Airport, that being Noddles Island, and right. uh, apparently... Uh, Samuel Maverick, who is remembered t- today for the tea stop Maverick Square, is uh, he? You know, he set up shop on Noddles Island. But tell me more about him. Yeah, we don't have. A, unfortunately, he's an interesting character. We don't have a lot of information about him. But yeah, he did uh, engage in the whaling trade. He collected uh, whale oil, and uh, mostly these were not from actively going out and harpooning the whales. But there were many uh, strandings of whales. Drift whaling at the time was big in New England, and he uh, was engaged in either purchasing the whale blubber or the whales or actually melting down the blubber himself or with some assistance into oil and then sending that oil back to England in exchange for uh, supplies that he in turn sold to the colonists. So he had one of the first whaling uh, marketing enterprises in the New World. But I didn't find there. He doesn't leave a very large footprint. No, he doesn't. But it's it's interesting that he's geographically well situated because he's the the waters of the Boston Harbor are are more muddy than sandy, and the sand is brought in for for beaches and stuff. Uh, So, you know, it's sort of like the the catch all or the end of a funnel of Mass Bay. So that strandings from Gloucester to Provincetown to Situate, you know, could be. You know, all along those shores could all be drawn into uh, the kind of the apex at, in uh, Noddle's Island. So right. he was a pretty clever guy to do that. And you have to keep in uh, mind when people hear about drift whaling, they think about today's situation where there are far fewer whales off the coast. And when there is a drift whale that comes ashore, especially a sizable, you know, a right whale or a humpback or a fin whale or something like that, it's a rare occasion. But back then, uh, there were many, many more whales, so just based on pure statistics, 
there were probably more uh, strandings that took place or uh, washed ashores. I remember Governor Winthrop writing, I think in 1634, about three or four large whales that had washed ashore in the Plymouth area, and and uh, the Massachusetts Bay Colony had sort of sent over and, and pilfered some of those whales and used them for their own purposes. There was a lot of competition between the colonies early on for the, the whaling industry, and eventually Massachusetts Bay or Massachusetts later on became the, the center for whaling in the United States and in the colonies. Yeah, and in particular, Nantucket. So why Nantucket? Well, Nantucket's a faraway land. It's way out there. It's closer to the migration path of whales when the uh, English colonists first got there in 1659 and purchased uh, some land uh, for two beaver hats and a small amount of money. They uh, were entering on an island that had perhaps a couple thousand Indians already there, Wampanoag Indians who were already skilled in in local whaling and, and taking advantage of whales that washed ashore. So the Nantucketers got involved in that, and they saw these whales swimming offshore. They knew that the whaling industry was uh, very profitable, especially back in Europe, and they longed for the day when whaling would be their main source. Whaling and cod fishing, perhaps, would be their main source of income, and things really took off after the early 1700s when uh, Christopher Hussey, as the story goes, went left the harbor with some of his men uh, to pursue probably right whales, which were nearby, but got blown off course far out into the ocean and was surrounded by a pod of sperm whales. And, of course, he knew what a sperm whale was because at the time the spermaceti oil in the sperm whale's head was the most valuable of all whale oils used to make uh, this is a little before they used to make candles, but it was very clean, burning, and expensive oil that was sold in Europe. So he harpooned one, brought it back, and that was the launch of the sperm whale fishery in America. And the Nantucketers pursued it with a vengeance, and by the eve of the American Revolution, uh, there were about 360 whale ships operating throughout the colonies, and almost half of those were coming out of Nantucket. They were simply the best uh, whalemen around, and they were making a killing, largely with the sperm whale industry, but also other other whales. And the industry overall in the colonies was providing about 50% of the income and trade between the colonies and the mother country. It was even larger than the cod fishing industry at the time. So Nantucket was perfectly situated. They had skilled mariners who were eager to get involved in the whaling uh, industry, and uh, they quickly became known the world over as the most proficient whalemen there were. We're talking with Eric Dolan, and we'll be right back after this break. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. All together now, all together now. 
Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. This is the Voice America Green Living Channel. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're talking with Eric Dolan. Uh, author of Leviathan. We're talking about the history of whaling. Eric was just telling us how Nantucket was flourishing. It was becoming a great oil baron of the time. and um, But then uh, times weren't always so good, were they? Right. And Nantucket maintained its lead in American whaling up through the pretty much the early to late mid to late 1820s, but then things started to go downhill, and I'll read a little bit about uh, one of the causes for that, and then we could talk about the others. Okay. So these good times, however, prove ephemeral. Uh, Nantucket's fall from its lofty perch was the result of many factors, all of which conspired to dampen the hopes of the island's whaling aristocracy. First in line was the sandbar at the harbor's mouth. In the early years of Nantucket's rise as a whaling port, the bar posed no problem to navigation. Although it was a mere 7 to 11 feet below the surface, depending on the tides, the bar was deep enough to let the relatively small whaling vessels of the day float over it. But the longer voyages of later years required larger ships, and larger ships, especially when laden with cargo, rode too low in the water to make the same passage. To overcome this obstacle, Nantucket's whaling merchants employed lighters, or small vessels, to ferry supplies and cargo over the bar, to and from whale ships anchored either beyond the harbor's mouth or at Edgartown on Martha's Vineyard, which was increasingly becoming Nantucket's alternative port. Lightering added time and expense to each voyage and placed the Nantucketers at a competitive disadvantage with their whaling peers on the mainland, who could, offload and, who could load and offload their vessels more efficiently while they were tied up at the wharves. For years, as frustration mounted, Nantucketers debated what to do about their predicament. By the early 1800s, popular opinion coalesced around a plan for dredging a channel through the bar, but Nantucket's appeals to Congress to undertake the project were rejected, and the town's locally financed dredging efforts failed. 
So up through the early 1840s, the sandbar problem persisted, much to the chagrin of Nantucket's whalemen. Then in 1842, Peter Folger Ewer provided a solution. And basically what his solution was, he came up with these things called camels, which essentially are large, hollow pontoons that you could put uh, around the hull of the ship on either side and fill them with water. You would slide them under the ship, fill them with water. They'd sink down in the water. And then you'd pump the water out of the pontoons. And as the pontoons rose because of buoyancy, they in turn were large enough to uh, cause the ship itself to rise a little bit out of the water and often rise far enough to make it over the notorious sandbar at Nantucket Harbor's mouth. And this worked for a number of years. They were able to use these camels quite effectively. It did add some cost and some time. It wasn't the most efficient system, but uh, they were able to make do. But there were a number of other forces that were acting against Nantucket at the time, one of which was the rise of New Bedford. A number of Nantucket whalemen, foremost among them uh, William Roach, the patriarch of the great whaling family on Nantucket, headed to New Bedford, which didn't have to deal with this camel problem. New Bedford not only had a a larger port and a deeper port to offload uh, whale oil and uh, the like and and baleen even uh, to some extent, they also were connected to the mainland much more closely. Railroads were starting to pop up, and they could transport their... Uh, cargoes more efficiently throughout the growing nation. So that was one thing that was working against Nantucket. Another was the Great Fire that took place in 1846. It destroyed much of the whaling infrastructure. And then came the gold rush of 1849. Uh, Dozens or scores of uh, Nantucket whaling vessels and Nantucketers went to the gold fields of San Francisco to make their fortune. And uh, all of those items, uh, all those factors combined, the difficulty of getting the ships into the port at Nantucket, the competition from growing ports on the mainland, especially New Bedford, the Great Fire, and the pull of the gold rush of 1849 basically sent Nantucket's whaling industry into a tailspin, and the last of Nantucket whale ships left in 1869 and never returned. And then they went on later, of course, to become a great center for tourism and vacation spot. <laughs> but it's interesting. It declined not because of the loss of the whales, but for other factors. Right. They had, no, by the 1840s, even even later in the American whaling industry, the American whalemen didn't, uh, with the exception of a couple of species, uh, they didn't send many of the key species like uh especially the sperm whale, the verge of extinction. There were still plenty of sperm whales left, certainly in the 1840s, for Nantucketers to uh, find them and and kill them. They were getting more difficult to find because they had depleted the populations, but there was still plenty of that. It was other forces that brought Nantucket to its knees. And this is right during the Golden Age of Whaling? Yeah, the Golden golden Age of Whaling sort of picked up after the War of 1812 and went through the late 1850s. And to give you a, an idea of how golden it, it was, by, the, by 1846, there were 735 American whale ships on the seven seas. That's out of a total of about 900 whale ships worldwide. And in 1853, the, the industry's most profitable year, the fleet, which was majority of the fleet came out in New Bedford at the time, killed more than 8,000 whales, generating sales of about 11 
million dollars, and there were about 70,000 people involved in whaling in one way or the other. And it was the fifth largest industry in the United States and the third largest in Massachusetts after uh, textiles and shoes. So it was a fairly large industry, and uh, that's why they call it the Golden Age. Uh, the, the age you said it went every- from 700-something ships to a bigger number? No, no, 735 American ships was the, the high point in 1846. High point. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's a lot from- of ships. <laughs> That's that's a yeah, it's a lot of ships, a lot of people, and uh, a lot of a lot of whales. And this, of course, is the era that people are most familiar with because of Moby Dick and uh, Melville. Right. And um, so things went barreling along for a while, and then something happened. Yeah, or there was uh, the beginning of a decline, or something. Yes, there are definitely a decline. I mean, there are a number of factors that cause the whaling industry to rapidly decline uh, after the late 1850s. One, of course, was the Civil War, during which uh, Confederate raiders like the Alabama and the Shenandoah uh, captured and burned and sunk scores of American whale ships because the Confederacy wanted to strike a blow at the Union's commerce on the high seas, and the whaling industry was one of the prime targets. After the war, the petroleum industry, which had kicked off at about 1859, was starting to ramp up, and all of a sudden there was a cheap and plentiful, almost limitless alternative uh, for lighting. No longer did they have to rely on whale oil. They could turn to a byproduct of the petroleum industry, kerosene, which was cheaper and burned fairly well. So by the end of the 1860s, the American whale oil industry was almost dead, but it still lumbered on for another 40, 50 years until the early 1900s because there was an increasing demand for baleen from the mouths of baleen whales like right whales and uh, humpbacks to a lesser extent. And, uh, right, all whales have some baleen in them. Except yeah, no, all the baleen whales, not the, not the sperm, sperm whales don't. Right. The odontocetes, they've got the, the teeth. But... Um, so there was an increased demand for baleen to be used in, of all things, uh, corsets for women. Uh, baleen was an exceptional material because when you heated it up, you could bend it, and then when you cooled it down, it would retain the shape it had been given. So it was good for making those chest-tightening uh, corsets that were all the rage in the late 1800s. But then in the early 1900s, uh, French designers decided that women shouldn't look like an hourglass they should have a slimmer profile, and as a result, uh, overnight, the market for baleen for corsets uh, nearly evaporated, and with it, the market for baleen. So by the war of World War One, and shortly thereafter, there were only uh, maybe 20 or 30 Yankee whale ships still left in existence, and most of them, or many of them, were making more money as props in uh, silent movies, like the Charles W. Morgan did, than they were uh, whaling. And whaling finally came to a real close in, at least the Yankee whalemen, the American whalemen, in uh, about 1924 with the sailing of the Wanderer out of New Bedford. uh, Yeah, we'll get to the the Wanderer in a minute, but um, let's let's talk some more about the decline. It's you know that people are kind of you know angry at the Shenandoah for taking so many whale ships and so forth, and then the Stone Fleet you talk about very well. Right. But clearly, 
if those ships hadn't been destroyed, the whaling was still would have gone down because, as you point out, the market was what really drove it. Yes. Uh, the it, What happened, yes, it, it wasn't the whaling industry, the American whaling industry, didn't fall on hard times because they suddenly couldn't find whales to kill. It's because nobody wanted one of the key products that those whales were uh, providing. There were still plenty of whales in the ocean uh, uh, to, to pursue, although it was greatly diminished from colonial times. But once there was no more need for whale oil, that uh, knocked out one of the main supports for the entire industry. And if it hadn't been for the demand, increasing demand for baleen, the American industry might have died then and there in the late 1860s. And oh. it was interesting, earlier um, when the uh, Americans had been going to the Arctic for bowhead whales, which were both huge and had a lot of baleen in their mouths in the 1850s. They would try them out. They would uh, boil down their blubber and also take the baleen. But by the 1870s and 1880s, they were still heading to the Arctic. But instead of taking any of the blubber, they would kill these whales solely for the baleen hanging down uh, from their top jaw. And uh, because baleen was the only marketable commodity that they could bring back to, to port. That's true. You'd see photographs of, or you'd see images of these old vessels with the whole decks cluttered with, you know, like um, asparagus stalks of uh, yes. <laughs> baleen all tied together. And, and there didn't seem to be any triworks around. Nope. They, yeah, they would, uh, they would put the baleen wherever they could, and sometimes they would put them up through the rigging. So it really looks strange. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, yeah, people, whalemen, just like any other, uh, people involved in extracting a natural resource for profit can only, uh, do that as long as there's a demand for the commodity they provide. And the whaling industry has followed close on the heels of consumer demand. Right. We'll be right back after this break. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. All together Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. This is the Voice America Green Living Channel. Spread the green. You're 
for listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, I'm talking with Eric J. Dolan, author of Leviathan, The History of Whaling in America. Eric, where can people go to learn more about your work, more information? Oh, they can go to my website, which is just my name. Uh, it's www.ericjdolan, E-R-I-C-J-A-Y-D-O-L-I-N.com. And there's a, a website that has uh, links to all the books I've written, excerpts from the books, pictures, reviews, and, and other stuff. And so that would be a really good place to start. You have a nice video clip you sent out, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. This is, this is, you know, it is absolutely fascinating how the advances in computers and sort of social media have changed the whole groundwork for getting the word out about books and the publishing industry in general. And I have a Mac, and I looked, my daughter once told me a couple of years ago about this thing called iMovie, which I knew nothing about. Anyway, to make a long story short, with her help, and my daughter's 14, with her help I put together a, 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 an iMovie, about a three-minute iMovie, that gives an introduction to Leviathan, the history of whaling in America, and also to the other books that I've written. And it's really fun putting it together. You take images from the book and you have a narration and you can pan in and pan out. It's sort of like the, they actually call it the Ken Burns effect on the on iMovie. So it's really yeah. fun putting those videos together, but you can find links to them on my website or just on YouTube. Well, I recommend them for the same reason I recommend the book, is that Eric has taken on an enormous topic and he speaks about it very succinctly and, and, and to the point. Um, this is the opposite of what Melville did to Moby Dick, <laughs> which is all over the place. So um, it's a fast-action book, and it's a fast-moving uh, video that uh, I highly recommend. Uh, so we were talking about, you know, the whaling went in decline because the market um, went out, and it was remarkable, you know, within the decade of finding oil in Pennsylvania, it was pretty much uh, the oil of choice instead of whale oil. Right. Yeah, well, you know, history is full of examples of one resource taking over from another. And now the big debate, of course, is is uh, are there going to be alternative sources of energy that knock uh, petroleum out of the box? So there, I'm sure there will be, uh, ultimately, uh, there have to be. And uh, that will create yet another revolution in our history of energy use and and even though whale oil was lighting and not really energy use, it's a, it's a parallel situation. Very parallel. And, you know, it, it required the right technology to get the oil out of the ground or get the oil refined uh, before it could sell. And now we have all kinds of efforts to develop the right technologies for clean energy sources to, to replace the, uh, the more dirty energy sources like right. uh, oil and coal. Mm-hmm. Um, so you were telling us about... Uh, in the in the end of the of your book and in the end of American whaling uh, is the wanderer. What's the wanderer? Well, the wanderer is a whale ship that uh, was preparing to head out of New Bedford on August twenty fourth, in nineteen twenty four, and it was it was sort of a nostalgic, festive, and sad occasion all rolled into one because many people thought that the wanderer would in fact be the last of the great 
Yankee wooden whale ships to ever go to sea. The industry was totally hobbled. There are only a couple of ships uh, left in the United States. And as a result, a bunch of reporters and hundreds of people came down to the docks in New Bedford to wish the wanderer well. But their wishes didn't uh, bear any fruit because the next day, uh, a nor'easter blew into uh, New Bedford, and the Wanderer, which had been moored off in the uh, in Buzzards Bay, basically went scudding across Buzzards Bay, pulling two anchors, and uh, foundered on the rocks on Cuttyhunk Island. And uh, the next group of people who went to see the Wanderer were the the tourists, not, I don't know tourists, but they were sort of people who were fascinated by what had happened to this poor ship. And there's a great picture in the book about people dressed up in their uh, finery, standing on the rocks, looking at the hulk of the wanderer careened on its side on the rocks off Cuttyhunk Island. And I always thought that the name of this ship was sort of a perfect fitting ending to the industry that I wrote about. And I can read the final paragraph of the book which uh, sort of encapsulates that. It says, It's ironic that the wanderer, in the end, didn't wander very far. There would have been some poetic justice had it, with its star-crossed name, been the very last of American wooden whale ships to head, symbolically, as it were, out to sea on a whaling cruise. But still the wanderer, slowly disintegrating in the surf, provided a fitting and final image for the great era of American whaling, which had now become part of America's mythic past. And, of course, whaling didn't end with the end of American whaling. Uh, later in the 20th century, industrial whaling, which was done by many other countries, including England, Russia, Norway, Iceland, Japan, uh, not with wooden ships, but with iron ships and steel ships and uh, grenade-launching harpoons and uh, a much different industry arose, and in fact, uh, a way many more whales were killed during the 20th century, and in this case, many of the larger whales, like blue whales and fin whales, which hadn't been hunted by the Yankee whalemen because they were too fast and large for them to deal with in their relatively small wooden ships and their antiquated uh, technology. So the whaling industry, of course, went on throughout the 20th century, and then there was the moratorium on whaling. And today we still have the remnants of uh, whaling with us in, in Japan and sometimes some other countries, and there are continuing debates over the uh, continuation of whaling for quote-unquote scientific purposes or whatever the Japanese happen to be claiming. Uh, but I'm convinced that before my life is over, nobody will be going to see to kill whales, they'll only be going to sea to view them, like on whale-watching cruises and, and the like. And I think the whale-watching industry has done a phenomenal service uh, on behalf of the whales and whale conservation, because the more people get to know about whales as animals and something to wonder about, the more interested they become in protecting this uh, great natural resource. Absolutely. You know, before uh, 1970, Nobody knew what whales looked like underwater. We only had seen them as dead things on the beach. And it was very difficult to get people to be concerned about the plight of this unknown animal. And now we have all these stories, as we've talked about at the beginning, of um, people having wonderful encounters with living whales and seeing them. Yeah, your, book is, your book is just phenomenal. The way, um, for the details... 
but also for the macro picture. I mean, here we are in the 21st century, and yet much of your book is the 18th, is the 19th century. And back then, you had instead of the oil barons, it was the uh, whale barons. You know, going right. into foreign countries and working out deals and trying to get their merchandise going. And mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's the whole story all over again that we see today was being played out over uh, ambergris and and bleen and silver. Yep. Yeah, I, that's one of the things that got intrigued me about the the story. There are always parallels, you know. It, it, it's not quite true that there's nothing new under the sun. I don't believe that. But it is very true that the more that you read uh, history, the more you have these surprising aha moments where you say, huh, I thought that was a new development or a new dynamic. <laughs> it was occurring 100 years ago, 200 years ago, 500 years ago. Uh, and that's not so much of a surprise when you, if you break down these industries to their barest bones, it's all about the same thing. It's about taking some resource, whether natural or synthetic or whatever, and transforming it into a product that people want to buy. And once you have a product that people want to buy, that demand fosters the industry, and the industry tries to uh, pursue whatever paths it can to make more and more uh, money. If you want to really understand a lot of American history and a lot of world history, just follow the money, because that will tell you where a lot of people were putting their energy. And from that, many great stories can be told and, and history is built. Eric, thank you very much. Uh, Eric Dolan, uh, it's been a pleasure talking with you on this episode. Great. Thank you, Rob. Until next time, thanks for listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogue. Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the Green Living Channel. We'll talk again then. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Green Talk Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit thegreentalknetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.